trigger warning, this podcast contains a deep discussion about grief, loss, domestic abuse and suicide, which some listeners may find distressing or upsetting. So please listen with caution. and welcome to Real Story. Yes, that's right, another new podcast series hosted by me, Freddie Cocker. So far, I've launched series to help DJs, solo artists and sports people from across the UK and beyond. However, there was one topic I wanted to cover on the Just Checking In podcast family that I myself have experienced both the light and dark sides of. That topic is theatre, in my case, acting. Acting and drama was a big part of my life, right up until the age of 16. I was the lead in most of my school plays and the stage was somewhere I could be the fullest version of myself in many ways and also escape from myself as well. Until I experienced the horrible period of bullying and cyberbullying in a drama school I went to, I'd given serious thought to pursuing acting as a career when I escaped my hellish secondary school. After this experience, however, I was turned off acting for a long time. Public speaking and plays became sort of a trigger for me, a construct of my PTSD, which I only removed in its entirety a few years ago, when I did my first public speaking appearance for Vent at the Mad Millennials launch event. In recent years, I've rekindled my love for the theatre and all the positivity it brings to our culture and society. In this new series, I'll be chatting to actors, producers, writers and performers from across the industry. Each pod will discuss my special guests' theatrical careers, the pieces of work that have meant the most to them, issues within the industry and their mental health journeys. This is Real Stories. If you hadn't noticed yet, we have got a brand new theme tune just for this series, Venters. You will all know how much I love big friends of the pod, Patawawa, which is why they provided the theme tune for every episode of the pod so far. I am also massive fans of London-based disco act Eka, and I've seen them live almost as many times as Patawawa. Their dance floor groover, backseat driver, will provide the soundtrack for each and every episode of Real Stories, and I beg you to go listen to them as well. You will not regret it. Now, on with the show. <laughs> My special guest for this first ever Real Stories episode is Dan Dawes. Dan is a writer, director, producer, and has also dabbled in a bit of acting in his time in theatre as well. He also happens to be a good friend of Tim Fletcher, who was the first ever Just Checking In pod guest and great event champion. Just seems like yesterday I was recording that pod with Tim, to be honest. The class divide in acting, resilience, anxiety, suicide and grief, and rediscovering your creative spark post-lockdown are all on the menu. This is how our check-in went. Dan, welcome to Real Stories. Thank you so much for taking the plunge and being the first ever guest on this new series. I can't promise everything will go smoothly, but hopefully it does. First off, everything's a bit crap at the moment, and we'll discuss it a bit later, but this year has been particularly horrible for everyone, I think. How are you coping at the moment, mate? And how are you, basically? Well, I mean, now I know that there's the added pressure of being the first in a new series. Fucking dreadfully, Freddie. But yeah, thanks for dropping that one in. No, I'm all good, mate. I think I'm looking forward to chatting. And yeah, I mean, fucking, I mean, at the time of recording, it's just before lockdown 2.0. So everyone's pretty uncertain about stuff. Everyone's pretty worried, pretty scared. I guess because of the, the physical impact of the virus, but also, you know, and the, and the potential damage that could do, but also more of an awareness of the wider impact of that as well. I, I guess there was a, almost like 
certainly wasn't for me, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later on, but for some people, I imagine there was a little bit of a novelty to the first lockdown, especially if they were relatively safe, not at risk. They didn't know people around them that got coronavirus or anything like that. So there's a kind of false perception of, oh, we're now spending some time at home with our family, et cetera, et cetera, and all these people baking fucking bread at home and having a lovely, lovely jolly time while people are dying in hospital. <laughs> Maybe that's a harsh of me to kind of have a go at people who are essentially trying to find ways to cope, and I don't blame them at all. But yeah, I think people are more aware now of the impacts this is going to have, and that's yeah, pretty shit, if I'm honest. When we spoke off air, I remember when I kind of came up with the concept of this idea, and I was talking to our good friend, mutual friend Tim, good friend event, first ever Just Checking In podcast, and I said to him, Tim, like I'm, I'm trying to start this series for theatrical people, for actors, for anyone involved in the theatre space. Who would you recommend? And he said, oh, you should definitely get in touch with Dan Dawes. So then I messaged you and turns out we'd already had a conversation, but I had no idea when we started that conversation. So it was one of those weird ones. Yeah, yeah, it's one of those organic relationships, isn't it? You don't quite know where it's begun. But Tim's a lovely guy. I've known him for yeah, quite a long time now. We met through a theatre company called The Questers, which is based in Ealing, uh, which is essentially a community theatre. But um, I mean, it's huge. And he came along to a lot of stuff to watch. And I was in a few things that mutual friends of his were in. He's great. And I'd re-listened to his podcast with you, the very first one last night before this. I'd listened to it at the time. But actually, it was even more pertinent, I think, listening back to that. The year that that I've had, um, he was talking about things like grief. And I know we'll we'll cover these sort of things later on. But it was really interesting to listen back to that and to listen to some of the other episodes as well. It's been great. We've got so much to crack on with, mate. So shall we just get started? Let's start right at the beginning and talk about your journey in theatre, Dan. So firstly, what made you fall in love with theatre, acting, drama and everything in between? Were you, like me, a bit of a wannabe child star actor, even in your school plays? No, I don't think I was, actually. (laughs) Again, so I keep sort of foreshadowing stuff that will happen later on in the pod. But I think a lot of it was to get away from my dad. He was not very nice. And so doing stuff away from the house was an escape from him, I suppose. But also kind of a bit of an escape from reality as well. And I, I just really loved sort of collaborating with people at a really young age. And like, yeah, there would have been a bit of ego in there somewhere. Of course there is, because I mean, you know, a kid. And I don't know, I started doing, you know, school plays like anyone else at primary school and stuff. And my mum sort of thought, oh, he's got an aptitude for this for some bizarre reason. I remember playing, <laughs> playing Scrooge in year three and acing it, basically. And it must be because I started being quite curmudgeonly at such a young age. So obviously it was a sort of natural aptitude for being a miserable old shit. And, um, it carried on from there, really. And, and I, I just quite enjoyed it. And I do all sorts of different Amdram groups when I was growing up. And I'd be here, there and everywhere with different people. And I just loved it. It was an, it was an escape from reality. I had no aspirations of fame. I still don't, really. I, I think it'd be an awful burden to be famous. I can't imagine the shit that celebrities have to go through. And people, you get these sort of influencers that are desperately trying to get attention. I think, fucking hell, don't. Just do what you love doing. And if you get attention for that from industry or whatever, that's different. But to be famous, I think, would be dreadful. The amount of shit that gets thrown at them. So it wasn't really that. I think it was just I really enjoyed collaborating with other people and getting out of the house and doing things creative. It was it was a release, I think, from normality. Just on that point, when it comes to your mental health, can you just elaborate a bit more on how drama and acting played into that escapism part and how your love for acting and the theatre grew alongside your mental health? Well, yeah, I didn't know it at the time, I don't think. I just enjoyed it. and I didn't really know why. And I still don't fully know why, because let's be honest, you know, the world is a mess of existential crisis, especially at the moment. 
and no one really knows what the media life is, blah, blah, blah. Let's all go <laughs> philosophical, shall we? So no one really knows why we do anything, I guess. But looking back over the last year, and I started therapy this year as well, which was long overdue. I started doing it as a reaction to something, but I should have done it years before. Because then you get to the opportunity to actually discuss things and think about the stuff that you like and think about the stuff that you don't like and go, oh shit, maybe it's because X, Y, Z, or maybe it's because, you know, this square peg fits in this square hole rather than anything else. And looking back, I think it was that escapism. But at the time, I had no idea. For most of us, the pantomime always seems to be our first taste of the theatre, either as a kid or, you know, as an adult, when you start acting professionally. We quickly grow out of it, I think, but it's such a priceless gateway into the theatre world, isn't it? It's sometimes looked down upon a bit as well. Have you ever found that snobbery in theatre amongst professional actors or Amdram? Yeah, all the time. And it pisses me off because from my point of view, I mean, I'm quite loudmouth about stuff. I should probably shut up sometimes because I get I get quite vocal about stuff that I don't like. But that's not because I don't appreciate the form. And actually, it doesn't really count for pantomimes. Like if I go and see something, I don't like it. I'm not afraid to say that I don't like it for whatever reason. But I fully believe that all forms of theatre and storytelling really are as equal as one another, right? For me, there's no difference between going and seeing something at the National and going and seeing something at Questers or going and seeing like a youth show or something, right? Because it's all, it's all an expression of something that people are doing. It's an expression of, of, of human emotion and human creativity. And quite often I've gone and see things at the National or the, the Globe or whatever and thought, oh, fucking shit. But I'll go and see something that is done by a bunch of kids a lot of the time. And it's brilliant. There's so much energy. I remember going and seeing something at the Questers with, I think Tim might have been there with me actually, I can't remember. And it was a version of The Tempest that this the youth group had done. And it was absolutely brilliant. There's such invention behind it and such enthusiasm. And that's what I want to see from something. And pantomimes normally exude that. And kids love it. If it's done right, it's often done wrong, if I'm honest. But no, I don't see any problem with pantomime at all. And I started going and seeing them a bit when I was a kid. My grandparents would take me, you know, once a year to go and see a panto. And that was brilliant. And I remember being one of the lucky little sods that get to go up on stage. And I, <laughs> I was up there with, I think, Roy Castle and Cannonball one year. And so all these sort of, you know... So I'm kind of, is a show my age now, right? But it's kind of random, early 90s sort of big celebrities. And I just fell in love with the magic of the storytelling and being taken somewhere else. And I think that definitely contributed to the start of a, a love for theatre, also the reason I mentioned earlier on. And yeah, I don't see any difference between a pantomime and a Shakespeare. It's all the same. It's all theatre. You come from a working class, non-theatrical background. And you said to me off air that you aspired to go to drama school, but you were actually glad you didn't. Tell me a bit why you said that. Is there a deeper mental health reason there, do you think? Or do you just not like drama groups, stereotypically? I mean, it's a tricky kind of thing to pin down because a lot of drama schools are different from one another. But a lot of them are in the limelight now. And I think it's long overdue. And I remember applying when I was 18 and didn't get anywhere. And I applied again after uni. And I didn't have any money after uni. I'd used all the grants and stuff that I was allowed to have. And I remember having a recall at Bristol Old Vic. And they said the first session they do, because you sort of rotate on different classes and stuff when you have the, the recall edition. The first one that I happened to have was one that was about finance. And they literally sat down and they said, uh, so how are you going to afford this then? And it was 20 grand a year. And I just had to say, I don't know. <laughs> I have no fucking idea. So for a start, it's really expensive. And I don't think you really get value for money, if I'm honest especially considering the quite doggy dog world that acting can be, especially out of drama school, it's, it's tough. And also, I think there are lots of drama schools. And, and again, not all of them. Some of them are really, really good. Some of them I, I really rate. 
but some of them make a point of breaking people down and essentially turning a young person, normally a young person, obviously get some mature students as well who go through the same process, turning them into little robots that represent that drama school. And I think that's the wrong approach. When I'm directing and writing, you know, just making theatre, whatever, I want to work with human beings. And that includes all their flaws and all their interests and all their personality. I don't want to work with a fucking robot. And I get a bit sick of that drama school approach. And I enjoy chatting to actors about it that have been through that. And the majority of them say it didn't do them any good. Breaking a human being down is dehumanising them. And I think that's a really archaic patriarchal frankly approach to what theatre is we're going to come on to it a bit later when it comes to your university experiences and the, and the financial things you just spoke about there but just on this quickly when you spoke about the financial aspect I guess this also plays into the whole unpaid internship and how it favours perhaps middle class actors with safety nets and financially supportive parents do you think this is creating a two-tier system in theatre and what do you think the mental health implications of that are I think it's definitely creating a, a two-tier system, but it's always been there and it's been there for a long time. And it's even more marked now because of coronavirus. So the people that can afford to stay in the industry are the ones that well can afford to stay in the industry. Right? Others can't do that. And I've got a few mates that have had to drop out because they haven't got the family support network or something. I don't have anything against actors who've got different background stuff at all. And most of them are fully aware. Most actors are pretty empathetic human beings and most of them are aware of the fact that they've got privilege but a lot of people don't. I certainly didn't when I was growing up. But having said that, I was still able to go and join groups and stuff. And that's because I was a bit more time rich than some people. Like there's some people grow up and they've got to go out to work at the age of 12 as, as, well, as well as school, right? So I had it lucky in some respects, but we didn't have much money floating around. But I just go and join groups for free, basically, as much as I could and get involved with stuff. But it's fine when you're a kid, but when, you, when you're an adult and you're growing up and it's tough, like after uni, I had to go and train to be a teacher. I was a teacher for three years because I couldn't afford to live in London. And I knew that London was a place I needed to be to be involved in the theatre industry. It's less so now, actually, which is a good thing. But I knew I needed to be in London and I could only afford to do that if I could have a job in something else. And, and most actors that I know from similar backgrounds do the same thing. They've got a, you know, a, a jobbing actor. They're working in a bar or a cafe or what at the same time. And it's hard. It's a gig economy and it's tough. And you get people in power structures, a little bit like the drama schools I mentioned earlier on, who are dicks to people basically and treat actors like they're cattle and it pisses me off endlessly i think there's a wider conversation to be had here i think about class in acting you know many of the old school thespians particularly ones who cut their teeth performing shakespeare i'm thinking of the likes of Serene mckellen sir patrick stewart as well as you know dame julie walters they've spoken passionately about the grants they were given as young actors to support their fledgling careers because they came from working class backgrounds they had them long enough so they could get their big breaks you told me that apprentice model doesn't exist anymore. I think this is quite a dangerous trend. What, what do you think about it? Well, yeah, it's not existed for a while, to be fair. And some venues are trying to bring it back. So, so, so the way they developed was through, well, certainly in McKellen anyway, was through the rep system. So the idea was that you had a group of actors or a troop of actors, if you want to use the correct <laughs> collective noun, and they would be hired by a theatre and they would churn out plays one after the other. So they do, a, you know, say, week one, they're rehearsing for play one, and they put that on the next week and then rehearsing play two at the same time as putting on play one right so you've got a whole rotation system repertory theater and that for me is a brilliant training ground because you're doing stuff all the time you're not overanalyzing you're not spending three years in a room with people telling you a load of wank about this is how to act this is how to do things for me theater is an incredibly practical business 
And of course, there's cerebral elements to it. Of course, there are. But it's very, very practical. And the rep system really helps with that. And I think some of the finest actors that the country has produced has come from that system. And now there's, I think the quality in terms of theatre acting has gone down a little bit overall. There are still wonderful actors out there, but drama schools tend to focus a lot on screen work. A lot of it's very cerebral. A lot of the stuff I sort of referred to you before about breaking people down. It's all bollocks. Just do plays. Just do stuff. And you learn through that. And you will start off being shit. You will, because everyone's shit when they first try something. This stuff about innate ability and talent, yeah, there's a little bit of that there, but a lot of it's craft. You know, the reason why they call it playwriting is because it's a craft. And acting and directing stuff is, is very similar. It's a craft. You've got, to, you've got to train it. You've got to practice at it. And the rep system was really, really good for that. It has its faults, but it was really good for that. And it's not there anymore. And it does a couple of things. It means that actors are more cerebral now, which is a shame. And or they think less on instinct. And also it means that access is, is more of a problem because the only people that can afford to get into the industry are the ones that go to drama school, basically. On that access point, do you think this has any mental health implications for how people can perhaps be limited in aspiring or dreaming of what they could be because they see the problems with that access, if that makes sense? Yeah, I think so. You know, I certainly did. When I was applying for drama school after uni and I saw peers of mine from uni go after drama school, well, I can't afford to do that. So it, it sort of delegitimizes you. It pushes you down into a place that this whole thing about social mobility is often complete bollocks, right? In practice, it doesn't exist very much, but it's almost weaponized as a term by certain governments, right? Oh, but social mobility, look at this person who's risen up through the ranks or whatever. For a start, it makes class very hierarchical and assumes that nobody wants to be working class, you know. And this kind of thing, which, which is incredibly damaging for a huge proportion of the population to say that this is something for you to aspire out of. But also it assumes there are systems in place that actually help with social mobility and there aren't as much anymore because you need cost nine grand a year. So that's incredibly prohibitive for a lot of people. And yeah, certain specific skill sets, like, you know, if you want to go into the world of acting, then yeah, you, sometimes you're stuffed because there are ways around it. I didn't go to drama school and I've seen in the industry. But for a lot of people, they think it's the only route in that's really hard. Of course, it's going to damage people's mental health because they want to aspire to something that basically they can't afford to do. I want to talk about your university acting career now. You went to the University of Cambridge where you carried on your acting journey. Now, there's a lot of very famous actors who have cut their teeth at your alma mater. Footlights is obviously the very famous one, which most people in the biz will know and carries a lot of name recognition outside of it. Did that ever interest you? And what can you tell me about this part of your theatrical journey? Well, Footlights is mainly comedy, and so I, I know I was sort of doing straight acting, I suppose, if you want to sort of use a weird term for it. So I didn't really get involved in much at all. It was also a little bit cliquey, which I'm sure you can probably imagine was the case. All of Cambridge was. It was a bit of a fluke that I got in, if I'm honest, because I know it sounds like I'm sort of trying to dismiss my own ability, and I shouldn't do that because mental health, etc. right? We all like to try and deflect from our own abilities and stuff. And I was quite clever, basically. So I was, I was able to get, you know, sort of decent grades at school. But I only apply. I remember at the time as well, there wasn't a, an online system. So it was just a UCAS book. And I went into school, whatever. And I was flicking through this UCAS book and looking at different universities and saw Cambridge and thought, ah, oh, fuck it. <laughs> Why not? I'd heard about it. I heard it was quite good and thought, yeah, I'll give that a go. I'd had no training or anything like that. And it did make me laugh a little bit that now I have worked in education. I see the amount of pressure that's put on a lot of kids to, to get to Oxbridge. And, and obviously a lot of the people I went to uni with as well, put under enormous pressure. Like imagine going to Eton or Winchester or something like that. And uh, you are essentially, you're being bred 
to go to Oxbridge. And if you don't get there, and I spoke to lots of people very candidly about this, you know, mates of mine who went to these sorts of schools. And I'm not saying that their life is really tough because it's not, right? But if you're in a system where you're sent off to boarding school really young and you've got all, all that pressure to get somewhere by the age of 18, that's incredibly damaging. And I didn't have that. So I was fortunate in that respect. Okay, fine, I didn't have all the training and stuff that they got. But can you imagine going through all that training and all that pressure and still fucking up? Whereas I just went, oh, I'm just going to apply for a laugh. I didn't get any training for interviews or anything like that. There's a whole ecosystem and there are people that build careers out of training kids to do Cambridge interviews. Fucking hell. It's a bit of a racket, I think, if I'm honest. And it was a weird, weird time of life. Yeah, three years after spending a lot of time basically in, in a working class environment, but doing lots of theatre with, with mates and stuff. And then going somewhere like that. Yeah, it was an odd, odd time of my life. It was at this point that you told me you really began to notice some, shall we say, cultural differences in the way you were treated or spoken to as a working class lad done good, in inverted commas, at this institution. And I guess it's come out more and more in recent news about accent, stereotyping or prejudice or whatever you want to call it when people have different accents to a privately educated upper middle class accent. One acting tour in particular, you said to me, exposed this difference quite starkly. Do you want to tell the listeners about this and the wider impact that these class differences were having on your mental health? I mean, I did lots of tours and stuff when I was there. I toured America and I toured Europe, which was really fun. But I mean, the piss taking accents certainly went on. and I sort of brushed it off at the time. In fact, I sort of played up to it in a way. I thought, well, if that's what people are going to label me, I'll, I'll play up to it, which is probably a bit of a silly thing to do in retrospect. But I'd be, oh, well, I, is Dan, is Dan coming into the pub, you know, on this kind of, so, you know, like I was fucking Andy Cat, And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, you know what I mean? I'm not, I'm not like that anyway, but compared to them, I, I certainly was. And there was always a degree of, yeah, you are slightly separate. Even though I had friends and stuff and friendship groups and stuff, but, you know, it's fine. It's like a little kind of feeling lonely or anything, but there was always that slight veneer of you are a little bit different. And there are certain codified things that are said that you don't feel a part of certain mannerisms. I remember actually going out with a, a girl at uni. I shouldn't mention her name because she's actually quite a prominent feminist now. She's, done, she's written books and stuff, and, and I agree with her entirely when it comes to the feminist angle. But she had a weird fascination with people from private school, really weird. And I remember thinking, you'll end up going out with someone from me, and I said, and she did in the end. And she used to say, oh, they've just got a way of dealing with women, which is a really, I just remember thinking that was a horrible statement. Horror, like made me feel sick. They have a certain mannerism with women. I thought, well, I, you know, try unpacking that sentence. Jesus, where do you fucking start? That's weird, isn't it? And there is a certain codified way of behaviour. And I'm not necessarily blaming people that are from those kind of places because it's not really their fault. It's, it, they're in a system like anywhere else. And they are taught to behave in a certain way, especially to women, right? And I think that's where the sentence came from. And there's a weird fascination with it. And I think a lot of it comes from the sort of the putting people like Benedict Cumberbatch on a pedestal and the sort of, you know, and the fact that the governments we've had, I mean, look at our last few prime ministers, most of them all from those kind of backgrounds. It's nonsense that we are still in this entrenched class system that we've had for a thousand years. We need to fucking break it up. That's my view on it. 
what you said there is really interesting because I'm self-confessed middle class. My mum is from a as working class background as you get. My dad is from a middle class West Yorkshire background. But even I, when I went to uni, got the whole you're from Essex, rah, 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 you're this, you're that. And actually, I'm from North East London, but that's beside the point. But I knew loads of friends who came from North East London or came from East London who got the whole, when they went to Northern unis, you sound like you're from London, all this bollocks, right? And we were self-confessed, lower middle class, middle class some working class people so the fact that you got it as well just seems like there's a massive problem here when it comes to classism at university and accents in particular and I found it weird because I can get along with pretty much everyone but what I found was is that you almost get like people from upper class backgrounds think you're working class because you're middle class it's such a weird dichotomy did you kind of find that as well like people thought that they were different classes because they were so high up Oh, mate, yeah. I mean, I remember going to a party once with an actual duke. He was a prick as well, as you can imagine. <laughs> he was fucking awful. I think there's a wider point to be made about this, which is uni is a bit of a formative time for people, right? They're desperately trying to assess who they are. And I think a lot of sexism, racism, classism, accentism, I suppose, we're going to sort of roll that into it as well, often comes from the fact that you've got people who are desperately trying to figure out who they are. And it goes on into adulthood as well, I think, a lot of it. And if these people are really desperate to find out who they are, then what they do is they project those insecurities onto other people, right? And they go, you are different from me, and I will treat you different from me in order to try and better understand who I am. That does sound a bit macro, doesn't it, at that point? But I think that's where a lot of it comes from. And it's really sad and there are some people that you get very confused about who they are anyway, and we all do, let's be honest. We still manage to avoid not being racist, sexist, classist, etc. But some people feel the need to do it, and I think it's because there are deep-rooted insecurities going on. And I think it happens a lot at uni because you've got a bunch of kids that are leaving home for the first time who are confused, who are scared, and you're in a weird little bubble. Especially was the case at Cambridge. I remember one day feeling so out of touch with the real world, and I was getting you know, in the stress about things that really shouldn't have got stressed about and I remember going to a cafe and like a decent greasy spoon sort of you know you need you need that right fry up a cup of tea and I asked the guy working there, can I just have all the papers that you've got in here please and I sat down in the cafe and I read every newspaper cover to cover just to try and get myself back into reality a little bit because I was so fed up worrying about stuff that I shouldn't have been worrying about it is a weird weird bubble uni and I think that's why a lot of these things come out the stigma that you experienced of being a working class actor didn't just have a financial aspect, but a social one. One thing you've said stood out to me. You said, I was the working class boy at uni, but the posh boy at home. For the listeners who don't really understand what that means, can you expand on that and the effect that had, first of all, on your identity, and I presume your mental health as well? Was that weird for you? Yeah, it was. It was worse when I went home because at uni, I, like I said, I sort of made a thing of it because I thought, well, I might as well embrace it. And people would take a piss up my accent and it's only really one or two would sort of took it too far, I think. But most people were fine. But yeah, when I went home, it was harder because that, that was home. Do you know what I mean? That was where I wanted to get a bit of comfort and, and I felt more myself. And I remember chatting to so my mum at the time worked in a pub up the road. And um, I remember going in there one day and chatting to a friend of hers at the bar, just someone she'd met through working in the pub, basically. And we were chatting for a good, like, 20 minutes. She went, oh, well, you know, what, what are you doing then and stuff? And I went, oh, I'm at uni. She went, oh, what uni did you go to? went Cambridge and she went oh you don't want to talk to me then will you suddenly the atmosphere completely changed because she saw me then in that moment basically as a bit of a class traitor 
which is a term that's used a lot and I fucking hate it, obviously. <laughs> and she, it also implied other things. It implied that she wasn't good enough to talk to me and that I was viewing her in a certain way as well. Do you know what I mean? It's another one of those sentences that's really difficult to unpack because there's so many things to have a look at. We could talk all day about it, I suppose. But it, I remember just feeling really sad after she said that. And yeah, not everyone treated me differently, but enough people did that I thought, well, that's actually quite sad that I don't fit in in either environment now. I don't think I knew it as much at the time, but yeah, it would have certainly done some damage. Yeah. After university, the peers you had who were able to afford acting school started doing it. This was something that you couldn't afford. Could you tell me about this period of your life and what you did next? Did you have any FOMO about not being able to access drama school like them or did it give you the drive to make it without this classical training? Well, classical training, I was quite lucky because because I did loads of different amateur dramatic groups and stuff at home. And so that for me was the equivalent of doing rep theatre, which we talked about earlier on. I often regarded myself as much better when it came to theatre craft than a lot of my peers at uni because they would be the ones sat there with their Arden copy of Shakespeare making notes and everything. But they couldn't actually do it on stage. And I'd just get up and do it because it was instinct because I've been doing it for years when I was little. And not so much Shakespeare, that, that was more when I was about sort of 16 onwards. But, you know, it is a real craft. And I sort of had a bit of a chip on my shoulder. So I thought, all these people, <laughs> these backgrounds and stuff. But, you know, I just get up and do it. And so I quite liked that. And I'd get in arguments with directors about stuff. And, you know, I was, like I said earlier on, a bit too much of a loudmouth. But when I went home after uni, it was very weird because before uni, I'd worked in retail for a couple of years. Worked in Burton <laughs> on the suits and the shoes. It was great. <laughs> Minimum wage job, basically. Turn up you know, nine to five most days and then go home. And after uni, I went straight back into the same job. And I thought, oh, shit, have I wasted three years? I could be manager of this store. I remember thinking I could be manager now, early 20s, but, you know, you have managers in retail, that sort of age, right? And I thought, I've wasted three years of my life. What have I done? I was very lucky because my degree encompassed some education stuff. So I did education with English and drama, which is the only drama course you can do at Cambridge because they're very snobby and they don't think drama is good enough subject on its own. So to combine it with English and education. Cause, you know, blah, blah. And I started going out with a girl who lived in London, vaguely knew each other from uni, but not very well. And she sort of messaged me after uni and we sort of got chatting and I went out for a date and stuff. And she worked for an education recruitment company. And she said, well, look, if you move up to London with me, which is sort of her ulterior motive, of course, <laughs> but if you move up here, I can get you jobs in schools. And that will pay for you to, you know, to live in London. And you can also, do, you know, try and do some acting stuff on the side. So it was only really that break that got me up there. Otherwise, I'd still be at home doing the same thing I was doing before, which is probably working in retail and doing some acting stuff on the side or, you know, theatre stuff on the side generally. It was only because I had that opportunity to go to London because of someone I was going out with working in education that I was able to go off and do that. And then that led into me training to be a teacher and working in schools in and around London for including training about three, four years. Let's talk about your work as an actor now, which began shortly after this. So you did semi-professional and then eventually professional work. What were some of your favourite roles, which meant a lot to you from a mental health perspective? And also perhaps what were some of the more challenging ones which took you out of your comfort zone? It's less about the roles, I think. And maybe that's not a very actory answer because you'll get lots of actors that will go, oh, well, I played Hamlet in the 65, you know, all this kind of stuff. But for me, it's not about that. It's about working with other people that's where the joy lies and yeah there have been some brilliant roles and stuff and some really insightful and stuff that makes you expand your practice I suppose but the most joyful part of it is doing touring I really love touring because you go to all sorts of different places in the country and abroad as well sometimes when I've been lucky enough to do that and you're with a bunch of actors a bunch of mates and you're getting to do what you love 
and you're getting normally not very much money for it, but you're getting some money for it. And it's brilliant. And it's that community feeling that I really love, that you're with a bunch of mates. And that is more advantageous, I think, for, for your mental health than the roles that you're playing. Do you think you need to be a certain type of person to make it in the arts or have a certain resilient mindset? You had a couple of stories you told me off air about some brutal casting calls, which I think the listeners should really hear about because I think it will open their eyes. Well, that's one quite good example that I can use, which is the difference in how an actor is treated from someone who's got their own theatre company, right? And I'll answer your first point later on, but this is part of the reason why I decided to go sort of more full pelt with running a company rather than sort of just, in inverted commas, being an actor. I went to a casting one morning for an advert, and they're always really soulless. Anyone who's an actor listening to this will know exactly the format. You turn up, you're waiting for ages, you sign more forms you need to apply for a mortgage with, often with the same information because these people can't be asked just copying some information across. And you go into a room and there's a casting director that's been there all day. And I feel bad for them because, you know, this is their job is to treat actors like cattle. And, and you go in and you face the camera and you say your name, you turn left, you turn right, you show your hands to show there's no tattoos on your hands and stuff. And, yeah, you say your agent's name and you do some really crappy little bit of improv. Oh, look, imagine there's a bird in the sky and you're following the bird in the sky. And, oh, and then it shits on your head. Oh, that's really funny, isn't it? And it's for some shitty company like Tech News or something. There's some crap going on. And it's just really soulless, basically. And, you're, and you're, you are treated, yeah, I keep using the same term, but it is true, you're treated a little bit like cattle. It's a machine and you're churned into it. And, you know, I feel bad for people that have been spent three years of drama school and then sat there and doing this sort of thing. And then in the afternoon, I had a meeting at a brilliant venue in London called The Bolts. I've been trying to put on a project there for a couple of years. And for, for one reason or another, it's not happened, but they're very keen to do it at some point. And because I've written this play and they read it, I met the head of theatre there who's really lovely, meeting with her and you're just treated so much differently you're treated as a creative and not again inverted commas just an actor and that's the only reason why i've gone into other things at all but it makes you realize christ that the life of an actor is is really hard because you're treated appallingly by people sometimes really appallingly and it's just part of the system and it's the system that needs to to change somehow i think but in terms of what you said i just remember your first question now that was sort of linked onto the, the start of that what did you say do you need to be a certain type of person or have a resilient mindset to make it? It's certainly resilient, yeah, because it's hard. It's really hard. And you get very few gigs. And when you do, you're often treated pretty badly, not by everyone at all. You know, I firmly believe that 75% of people that work in the industry, you know, companies are absolutely trying to do the right thing and are really, really good. You know, we try and do the right thing. Lots of the companies do. But there's a significant minority that treat actors really badly. And I think you've got to be pretty resilient to cope with that, yeah. In terms of, do I think people need to be from a certain background? No, I want more diversity in acting. 100% want more because it makes things more interesting. I don't want to just see a bunch of people that, that look and sound the same. But unfortunately, the theatre industry has been a bit amorphous for a while where people are a bit like that. And it needs changing. You know, there's a real dearth of working class actors for a start. Aren't very many and for the reasons we discussed already. And that is a real shame because they bring different insights. People are middle class, upper class, whatever, bring different insights as well. So you want to mix the people because theatre reflects life. And life is broad and diverse and wonderful. And so you want all the people that are involved in that profession to be diverse and broad and wonderful as well. I always hear this stat that's kind of talked about a bit jokily in the acting world, where it's something like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, that 99% of actors are always out of work at any one time. What mental health implications do you think this has? Because it's said in a jokey way, but... When you actually look deeper, it's not that 
much of a joke, is it? No, it's not. But then it's a little bit disingenuous because, well, not disingenuous, but it's not quite true because they are in work. It's just not acting work. So that so they're the ones working in, in, in the bars or the you know or whatever. Or like myself, for a long time, I was doing teaching at the same time. And there's a lot of actors work in education as TAs or whatever. So they are working. It's just that they're not doing the thing that they really want to do. And it's hard. Look, it's an industry that's dominated by a lot of people. A lot of people want to do it. So of course you're going to have a, a large degree of people who aren't doing acting work or doing theatre work at all for long stretches. And I'm the same, even though I've got a theatre company, there will be times where it's a good few months if you're not actually maybe doing anything in that world anyway. And that's natural. But it is tough. And you're right, it is used sort of flippantly and it delegitimizes people's skill sets, especially those who paid 20-odd grand or more to go to drama school, right? You're paying all that money and then not doing the thing you've trained for. And do that with saying that to a lawyer. If you've been to law school... You're practicing lawyer and you only get to be a lawyer one percent of the time <laughs> so that's the equivalent you're right it shouldn't be a joke but actors are from my experience incredibly resilient and i think you need to be yeah you're in quite a fortunate position dan where you said to me just recently that you own your own theater company but you also have a very supportive partner who is able to support you both financially however not everyone is as lucky just tell me a bit about your experience first of all and then what is perhaps the darker side of that when people don't have that support like you said they might have to actually quit acting altogether epitomize both those things i suppose because it was a conversation with my wife she works as a journalist and she you know has managed to kind of keep a job through all the coronavirus and stuff which is very fortunate but i was basically sort of jobbing and we started this theater company and we sort of thought well is it worth really throwing ourselves into this a bit more full-time this happened about four years ago and we took the decision at the time okay dan go for it I'm very lucky in that respect and that her income would cover us both. Before then, I didn't have that safety net. So I do now, and that's incredibly fortunate because it means I can do more projects, basically. Beforehand, we were doing maybe one or two a year, but now we can concentrate on doing more stuff and I can have meetings more often, I can network more often and I can chuck ideas out there more often, have that time and space to actually do things creatively. Before that, I didn't have it. So I was having to do supply work all the time I mean, I was basically going back to teaching full time. It's very tempting if you're earning decent money going and being a teacher. It's, you know, 150 quid a day, which is not anything to be sniffed at. And I'd go in and I'd be able to teach. And it was just easy. It was really easy to go and do that. And it means you're not giving yourself the space and the time sometimes to develop what you need to do as a theatre company or whatnot. So arts counts are really good and, and various different grants as well that you can get and funding. But yeah, without a safety net, it's hard. You can still do stuff because, you know, again, I epitomise that. You can still do stuff, but it's much, much harder to concentrate time on it. And I'm very fortunate that I have that safety net and my wife's very supportive. I mean, she runs the company with me, so I guess it's in her interest as well. But it is very, very handy and very, very useful. And I try to work with people as much as I can who don't always have those safety nets because I want to give them a bit of a crack at stuff as well, basically, because it's, I recognise how hard it is and how tempting it is to work in something else that brings in the money and just finally dan for anyone wanting to go into theater acting writing producing given all you've gone through what message or advice would you give them from your experience i think just do stuff as much as you can now that sounds really basic but all i can do is speak from personal experience and that helped me just doing stuff as much as i could like i didn't have a spare five minutes when i was growing up because i was always out doing stuff and now is really hard because theatre's gone basically there's bits of stuff happening and there's things like online but it's a very different medium and it's difficult because when you've been doing it all your life constantly 
to not have that is, is a really difficult way to, to manage or it's difficult to manage. So I just say to people, take the opportunities that you can and just do stuff and practice, 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 because it is a craft, it is practical. The more you do, the better you get. We talked about Dan, the actor, writer and director. Let's talk about your own journey in a bit more detail, mate. So why don't you walk me through your early life in Portsmouth, where you grew up, maybe your teenage years. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Dan that we meet here? Well, it's a big question, isn't it? Yeah, it's difficult because there are lots of very positive things about my childhood, really positive. Like I had very lovely grandparents, mum's side anyway. My mum was trying her best for us and was lovely but my dad not so much so there was a lot of abuse I don't remember the physical abuse I mean there was some it was a little bit when I was growing up a bit later that I do remember but only really sort of occasionally getting pinned against the wall or something like that but I was never sort of hit it was just sort of well no I'm making excuses there was physical abuse there just wasn't a huge amount of it there was a lot more when I was a kid when I was very very little that I don't remember that my mum told me about later on and I know that she nearly divorced my dad when I was quite young because it was happening so frequently. And I also know that I would stand up for my mum as even as, as a toddler, basically. You know, which is pretty kind of weirdly funny if you think about it, I suppose. Yeah, and so I don't think I've ever been aware of mental health aspects of that until this year, really. So I've got three brothers, all younger than me, who all went through a similar experience to me growing up. You know, we're very close. Once my mum divorced my dad when, when I was 18, we became a really tight-knit group as a result of this negative influence that had gone from our lives, basically. And we talked about this a lot, and we've always sort of joked about it and gone, oh, God, yeah, dad must have fucked us up, mustn't he? Oh, that's funny. Yeah, we'll, we'll deal with it one day. So it's kind of like a subconscious thing. We all know that. Jesus, yeah, actually, we went through quite a lot of shit when we were kids, but have not really acknowledged it. And it's only very recently, literally in the last few months, that I've sat back and gone, oh, actually, that wasn't very nice. And I think sometimes we have a propensity, don't we, as human beings, to sort of brush off our own problems and yet be very sympathetic to others. And I've always been really willing to listen to people's mental health stories, I suppose, and to help actors through stuff, as mentioned before, and deal with people as human beings and help them. And actually, we don't help ourselves enough. And I certainly didn't give myself enough self-care or enough respect to go, actually, Dan, you need to, you need to spend some time unpacking some stuff that happened. So it was a very happy childhood in some respects because I was able to escape and do theatre, as I mentioned before, and grandparents were lovely and my mum was lovely. But her approach and my grandparents' approach was always, don't worry, put a smile on your face and carry on. And at the time, I we were thinking, yeah, that's good because you're just getting on with life, it's fine. And actually you go, well, no, probably shouldn't have done that because there's a lot of stuff to deal with. And, and you were basically, as much as it's hard for me to admit now, you were excusing the behaviour of a monster. And that's not really acceptable. And the reason why she eventually divorced my dad was because, well, for many reasons, but I just remember her being miserable the whole time that she just burst into tears all the time. This was about 18. And because I riled my dad a lot, I was accused of being a home wreck a lot. So it I was always in a weird situation where I felt like I wanted to help my mum out and I wanted to back her up. But if I did that, then he would take that out on her. And so it was a weird cycle where I felt I couldn't say stuff even though I wanted to because I'd get her in the shit. 
And it was hard. Like, he was just, he was a dick, basically. He was a complete fucking dick. Toxic masculinity rolled into one person. And he would find a ways to belittle all of us. And I was gay. I won't use any other words because I don't want to sort of offend people. But, you know, really graphic homosexual words because I liked acting. Which, again, you can unpack. There's lots of things to unpack there, right? For start, you're not valuing people who are homosexuals, right? For start, you're suggesting they're somehow beneath you. But also assuming I was, assuming the acting was like that and stuff. And he did that with me. With my youngest brother, Dave, he would talk about his body and stuff. And, and my, my brother admits now that he goes to gym quite a lot because of comments that my dad made a lot when he was a kid. One of my brothers is autistic and epileptic as well. And my dad would basically bully him and make him do things, almost treat him like an animal. And my other brother, Jay, he would sort of bully relentlessly as well. And he just found ways to needle all of us. And my mum finally decided enough is enough. She listened to, you know, the Manic Street Preachers song, If You Tolerate This, Your Children Will Be Next. I can't remember the name of the song. I think it might just be that. And she was big into her music and when she was allowed to be. And she just listened to those lyrics and thought, yeah, I'm tolerating this and I, and I shouldn't. I've got to do something about it. And I'm, and I'm really glad that she did. Given that you witnessed both domestic abuse and toxic masculinity so strongly, when you were growing up, did this A, make your relationship with your mum even stronger as an adult and a child? And did it make you more protective of your three younger brothers as well, because you wanted to protect them from your dad and perhaps take the brunt of his perhaps bullying behaviour and save them, if that makes sense? Yeah. Saviour complex is a big thing, right? And I've only just realised that this is what's been going on in my life for a long time, because... I wanted to save my mum from my dad, and I wanted to save my brothers from my dad. And I grew up way too young, way too young. And I think to give this slightly cyclical feel, I think part of the reason why I did acting and theatre stuff was because I was allowed to be a child. I was allowed to go and play somewhere. And actually, I wasn't given that permission at, at home because I had to be an adult, basically, from a really young age. I don't know how young, but I remember thinking I've got to, sounds a bit weird but sort of be the man do you know what I mean in a sort of very gendered way but that's also an environment I was brought up in you know because I just witnessed this toxic masculinity the whole time and sometimes wasn't aware that that's what that was the case and it, and it certainly fed into a saviour complex and that later on and also a lot of anger issues as well I just get really angry and it would often be about stupid things like games and stuff playing games I used to get so angry with people playing football when I was growing up and I remember I had a football I'd be playing football with my mates and I wouldn't score a goal or they'd take the piss at me for missing a chance or whatever and I'd pick the ball up and go home <laughs> you know he's he's have real anger issues and I, all I was doing was projecting that anger that I had towards my dad in other parts of my life I guess because I wasn't able to express it at home because if I did I'd get my mum on the shit and that carried on until very recently, late 20, I mean, I'm 34 now. and Yeah, I think sort of mid-late 20s, certainly. A lot of anger issues still. I, still, I didn't know how to unpack stuff. I didn't know what was really going on in my head. I didn't understand it. I thought people had to behave in a certain way. Not that I, I think I have too many sort of symptoms, I guess, of toxic masculinity, but, but in terms of that anger, that was there. Did you or your brothers ever become hyper self-aware or conscious of not being abusive yourselves towards women because of the experience that you went through and did it ever become not extreme but 
to the point where you would maybe overthink things or overthink certain behaviours, if that makes sense? Yeah, you're always conscious of not being like him. And actually, the, the most insulting thing my mum ever said to me was, you sound like your dad. I was saying something, and I remember going, oh, fuck. I don't think I did, actually, but I can't even remember what it was. But we were having a, an argument about something, and I, and I said something that I don't know what it was, and she you know, you sound like your dad saying that. Fucking hell, that's an awful thing to say. I, you know, I hated him. I hated him. I'd say I still do, but actually it's more passive now. He's like a stranger to me now. I've not spoken to him for fucking like 15 years. Yeah, and so it's more of a passive thing now. I don't, I don't feel as much anger as I used to. But yeah, I think we were always really conscious of not being like that, which is only a good thing in my point of view, because we saw what abuse does to people, what, what it did to us, what it did to my mum. We did to my grandparents who are in a really difficult situation because they're dealing with a daughter who was in love with someone, but the person she was in love with was abusive. Yeah, it was all, everyone's always on, on tenterhooks. And, and when he finally left, I mean, there are all sorts of, I mean, he gave us death threats before he went. I slept with a knife under my pillow for a while. We went to the police because he was doing really weird things. Because he was still in the house for about, I think it's about six months before. My mum was able to basically remortgage the house and kick him out, pay him off. I think it was about 80 grand or something stupid like that just to get rid of him because he obviously you know, dug his heels in. And after that, there was just such a change in atmosphere. We were a family for the, probably for the first time. It's fair to say that until the start of this year, you were perhaps fortunate you said to me when it comes to negative mental health experiences outside of the abuse and that trauma that you experienced as a child however just before lockdown your mum took her own life now I can't even imagine what this must have been like for you mate if you could just tell me what the events were kind of leading up to it and then the aftermath and and how you felt what happened really we we still don't really know what really happened but sort of towards the start of 2019, sort of spring 2019, she started being really insecure about stuff that she'd never been insecure about before, or certainly not for a long, long time. Certainly since my dad left, which was you know, way back. I remember actually treating her for her birthday. It was her birthday in March, and I, I took her up near the O2 stadium, and she'd always wanted to climb over the O2, and I said, I'll treat you for your birthday, and I'll take you wherever you want. And, well, you don't get out enough, you don't do stuff. And she says, I just want to climb the O2. I can't go. And, and I took her around London for the weekend and stuff. And I remember even then, like, she just sort of seemed slightly off, not quite as comfortable as she normally was. And then that sort of developed through the spring and the summer. And we think now, and she thought at the time as well, that it was menopause that triggered it. Um, she started focusing on her face and started thinking that her, her face was drooping. We went, no, 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 you look no different. You look fine. And she just sort of started rapidly going downhill mental health-wise and, Oh, well, I had seen my mum like that before. My dad was around. But I hadn't seen her like that for a long time. Where she, she was shaking, she was crying. There were days she couldn't get out of bed. And I would go back home quite a lot to help sort of look after her. And she was signed off work because she had a basically a panic attack at work in September last year, in like 2019. And it, she just kept deteriorating. She tried all sorts of medication, but GP provision... NHS provision for mental health is not very good, especially in that area. I think it really depends on what area you're in, and it was really bad. She tried taking her own life in, I think it was late summer, I think it was August 2019, before she went back to work. She went to hospital, and 
it was an overdose and uh, she went to hospital and was basically discharged like hey how are you feeling now do you think we'll do it again okay fine see you later then. that was it that was it and she tried it again later on in the year and despite the fact that you know we'd taken all the pills away and stuff and like it's difficult because you've still got like knives in the drawing so like you know if someone wants to do this then they will find a way of doing it but for her it seemed to be an overdose and we took all the pills away but she still found managed to find a way to do it and after then she spent more time in hospital because she was quite unwell as you can imagine and the mental health provision after that was okay she had a sort of two-week course afterwards and it gave her a bit of structure to her day because she wasn't going to work either and she felt because you know she'd been this mother hen for a long time she'd looked after us all her life and she'd spent so much time in her life looking after other people especially my autistic brother and my grandma especially since, since my granddad passed away which is about 10 years ago she is the person keeping people together and then suddenly she was thrown into a situation because of the menopause, probably, but I think also because of other deep-rooted stuff that she hadn't really got into herself, mental health things. Suddenly her world was falling apart. Everything that she valued and that she knew, which was looking after other people she couldn't do anymore because she had to look after herself and she didn't know how to do that. And we really tried to help her. She had this two-week course and she was she seemed to be doing okay. Towards the end of last year, she was doing a bit better. She went back to work at the start of this year, 2020. She kept saying she still felt really sad all the time. And I remember going back the weekend before she died uh, to Portsmouth to go and sort of see how she was and stuff. And like we went out for the day. And these simple things like we cleared out one of the rooms in the house because it was a bit of a mess because my brother just moved back in. We cleared out loads of crap basically. And we would take it out to the dump. <laughs> and I, I went to buy her a new lamp from Argos because hers had broken. And we're just sort of tooting around town really. And she said, I used to love doing things like this, just pottering around. And she just, she didn't. It was like someone had cut a hole in her and there was just no positivity at all. She couldn't find any simple joy. And it was really obviously horrible to see. And we all were trying to make her feel better. And, and you know, it did work basically, which is horrible because then a lot of guilt comes and you think, well, could I have done anything differently? But the answer is probably not, but you still have that go around in your head and then she took an overdose again in mid-March and she passed away at one in the morning uh, on the 18th of March and I got to hospital just in time but I almost wish I hadn't because I got to see the final few minutes when they were basically trying to restart her heart and it's yeah I don't wish that on my worst enemy it was it was horrible to watch and yeah, and then and then lockdown happened about four days later. I think it was the 23rd it happened. And yeah, hardest time of my life by a long, 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 long way. To see that and to have that happen and to basically all of normal life completely changing, including the industry that I loved, my escapism, which was theatre, but also football. And I was like, flip on paper, like everything that you know that is your escape just disappears and you're suddenly stuck in a house with your brothers and the, your partners going, fuck what we're going to do. We can't go and see grandma because she's got isolated, can't see this person. The amount of bureaucracy that's involved with something like death is, is enormous. And so you're phoning places up, you know, solicitors, coroners, all sorts of things, simple things like, oh, change, you've got to change the bills over and stuff like that. And you're phoning places up and everyone's in such a panic. And it was just horrible. Uh, and, you know, uh, horrible, horrible time. And also my own mental health was fucked because... Sorry, now I'm rabbiting on here. <laughs> There's a point. I'm probably going beyond your initial question. But 
I hadn't left my flat for two weeks prior to that because I was terrified about coronavirus because I'd suddenly developed health anxiety from about January last year. And I'd never had that before. And I think what triggered it was seeing my mum go through the same stuff that I saw her go through when I was little. I'm only just really realizing that now. And yeah, I'll, maybe I'll talk about health anxiety a bit more in a minute. But yeah, it was a terrifying time of life. And we, we aren't out of it yet. Definitely not. But things are looking a little bit brighter now because it's been a little bit more time. But yeah, um, it was horrendous. We often say on this pod, Dan, that grief is more stigmatised than mental health in many ways. Is that something you'd agree with? And if so, can you talk about it from your perspective and experience when it came to your mum? Yeah, it's kind of weird because like, one of the things they say about grief is that you might feel very resentful that the world is carrying on around you as normal. And it wasn't. <laughs> and so in a weird way, it felt a little bit like the world was sort of grieving along with us because everything changed. And there was no solace in that. But then you also have the resentment of things being normal as well. What it did do, and if you can try and get any positives from coronavirus at all, then maybe this is one of them. There aren't very many, to be honest. But there was more of an awareness of checking in with people and being aware of mental health through a time like this. And therefore, there was a big outpouring of love towards us and myself and my brothers, my family. But it meant it was all remote and you couldn't see people. And there were friends of hers that we were just chatting to on the phone or whatever. And normally you'd have a funeral with loads of people there. And she was enormously popular. She, she worked in a school for a long time and was, was hugely loved there. And we got lots of letters from kids and stuff and, and staff and things like that. And she worked in a pub before, so it was really sociable. There was a real outpouring of social life after my dad left, basically, making up for lost time, I suppose. But you couldn't access that because the world was in lockdown. And so it just felt very, very surreal. And we still can't really do anything. Like we still, we did a funeral, but there was only like six of us there, immediate family, basically. My grandma was there, but we couldn't hug her, couldn't get her near her. And we still haven't arranged, I want to arrange a memorial session for her, basically. Memorial session, so I'm getting, getting pissed, which I probably will do, if I'm honest. But, you know, the school have offered to basically host something for her. But again, we don't know when that will be because the way the world is at the moment, and we hope to do it at some point next year, basically. But, without that catharsis of seeing friends and family, it's all kind of wrapped up. The coronavirus for me is all wrapped up in my mum's death in, in a really weird way. So yeah, there's still lots to unpack, I think. When it comes to suicide, people always talk about the person and the individual, and rightly so. But that person's death can affect a whole network of people. Like you said, it's the school that she worked at, it's the bars that she worked at. Did you find any stigma when people asked about how she passed? Because you obviously had to say that she took her own life. And then also, what were your emotions in those weeks after she passed? Because obviously, she had tried to take her own life previously. Do you feel now a sense of sadness that she felt in so much pain? Are you now at peace with it? Because a lot of people, and I guess back in the day when stigma was very high, would get very angry. They'd say, how selfish of them? How could they leave four kids how could they leave a loving family and all this so what are your kind of perspectives on it now i mean it changes sometimes hour to hour right so it's difficult to sort of pinpoint but initially we didn't tell people how she died but if people asked me directly as in like we did the thing where you put a facebook post up which i really hate because it's sort of it almost cheapens death 
you know, writing a comment on a fucking Facebook wall, but it, you know, that's kind of the way it's done now. And she had a big network of friends on Facebook and stuff. And we just put on there that she'd passed away. And, but of course everyone was going, well, shit, you know why? She was young. She was 57. And the school didn't know that she'd attempted suicide before because my mum was terrified about losing her job. And they didn't, and even though staff there have been really supportive, it's a lovely school about mental health. And there's even a colleague of hers there who talked about her own mental health experience. And she was signed up work for a bit and, my mum hadn't felt like, because she, she had a stigma about it. She didn't want people to know about it. So initially we just sort of announced it, I suppose. But then people asked us directly, we'd, we'd say it was suicide, yeah. And how I feel about it with her, I, I don't know. I mean, sometimes I'm angry, sometimes I feel guilty, but she was in a lot of pain. She said to me, not long before she died, it sounds really horrible, and well, it is. She wished she had cancer because she'd be able to deal with that in a better way than what she was going through because she she was became a, a complete shell of her former self. I've never seen a transformation in a human being like it before. And I think it, you know, it happened for the reasons we've already discussed, menopause, mental health, stigma, et cetera, pressure, whatever. And there's still a lot to unpack for myself and my brothers, but I'm just sad. I, overall now, what, sort of six, seven months later, it's just sadness, I think, really more than anything, that she would feel so desperate that she felt that was the only way out. And sad for us as well as, as the family left behind, sad for her friends that didn't know she was going through this because she felt she couldn't talk to you, know, because that, that emotion that I said earlier on when I was growing up, just keep, keep a smile on your face. It was still there somewhere in her and that she wasn't able to actually look after herself and give herself a sort of hug, basically. So it's it's mainly just yeah, just desperate sadness and desperate longing just to talk to her again. Before we go on to your health anxiety experiences, Dan, I'm sure your mum is listening to this pod somewhere, and I'm sure she's so proud of you for how, what you've achieved this year and the support you've given to your brothers and her. Given all you've achieved and all you've been through, if she was listening to this pod, what do you think you would say to her? Don't do it, I guess. I mean, that's that's really fucking... Just, just don't do it. But I also recognise how hard it was. I just was... I was desperate for her to look after herself as much as she could. But it, it happened. And just to... Just to keep going. But it's, it's really difficult, though, Freddie, because, you know... I'm not sure she'd have coped with lockdown either because she wasn't... All the turmoil and all the change of that and... I remember taking her up to bed because she was she was shaking and, and, and crying so much. So I was like, you just need to get... She felt safe in bed and that was it. And there's a tiny little mark on the banister as she went up the stairs and she just sort of flipped out about it. Like it was one little thing that she noticed. Like Because at first, when she, she was first going through it, I thought, well, maybe I need to have a go at my brothers because they're not keeping the house very clean. And it's my autistic brother, bless him, and my other brother who just moved back in. I thought maybe it's, you know, they need to put their ideas up and I'll sort them out and go down. And actually, I realised, no, 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 it's nothing to do with that. This is something much bigger than just the house is a bit of a mess and she's getting stressed about it. This is, I wish I could change things, but I can't. And we need to accept that. And she'd have found this year incredibly hard. And if I could change anything, it would be just to try and stop her from doing it and just try and convince her that she will get through it and that there is help there. But what annoys me though, Freddie, and I'm sure you talked about this with lots of your guests, is that there is an onus on the person who's suffering to reach out for help and they are not in a position to do that. They can't do it. 
right? And it pisses me off. And that was all that that was all we were told by GPs. And they said, "Oh, there's help there, it's a charity." And she tried. You know, there, there are charities and stuff that deal with that deal with mental health in the area. And she would phone them and leave messages. Nothing back. Nothing back. And this was months and months before. And it's hard. I know there's lots of people going through stuff, but the provisions for mental health in, in the area were absolutely fucking dire. And the owner should not be on somebody to reach out because they feel they're not able to a lot of the time. I talk to her and say, mum, you can get through this. It's going to be really fucking hard, but you can do it. It would have been really difficult for her this year, especially really difficult. Just on that, mate, this is something I talk about all the time on the pod. You're absolutely right. When it comes to people saying to someone, if you're struggling, reach out or, you know, you're always here if you need me. And I just start to get really annoyed by that sometimes. And obviously people are doing it from a good place and I completely respect that. But we have to change the narrative from putting the onus on the person suffering to actively checking in. Because a lot of the time, and you might have seen it the other day where a Man City academy player tragically took his own life. And the article just basically had excerpts of people going, you would never have thought he had anything wrong with him. He never said anything bad about his mental health. He never seemed like he was struggling. And I was like, this is exactly part of the problem. That's the narrative, isn't it? And I think people do that out of comfort, actually, because it's a way to excuse themselves from not being a mate or not being a good brother or sister or parent, whatever. And it's hard because people do feel guilty about that sort of stuff. And they oh, God, I never would have thought it. Well, maybe you didn't ask, did you? You know, that's my attitude a little bit towards it. And, of course, we can't go around all the time trying to check in people, you know, constantly. It's, you know, it never end. But I set myself a little rule in lockdown. I didn't always follow through with it, and I should have done. I thought if I think of someone, I'll message them, see how they're doing. And it's been really lovely, actually, because I've spoken to lots of people. And, of course, a lot of people reached out to me initially because my mum died and stuff. And people have been checking in with me since. But I've also tried to think, oh, no, I need to check with other people as well to check in with them, see how they are. I desperately try and cling on to any positives that you can get out of a situation. And another thing that has come up my mum's death is myself and my brothers now have a really heightened awareness of our own mental health, but also other people's mental health. And so I'm an active participant in other people with mental health talking about it, destigmatizing it. And I think if my mum was to have a legacy, then that's a pretty good one. I think she was desperate to reach out to people and desperate to get help. But she felt often that, well, the support wasn't there formally, but she felt there was a stigma around it. She didn't talk to mates enough about it. I think she'd be pretty proud of us now for talking about things like this much more openly. But I hope anyway. Let's talk about your experiences with health anxiety, as you mentioned before, Dan. Two months before your month, your mum passed, you told me that you began to experience this serious bout of health anxiety, including panic attacks that you said were so severe you thought you were going to die. I've certainly had my experiences of that when lockdown first happened. And like you said, losing all those self-care tools. And not, that was me. That was losing the theatre, losing football, losing gigs. You know, I completely agree with where you're coming from. Do you think they were brought on out of fear for your mum were there other factors to play it as well? Or was it just a kind of smorgasbord of things that went into one, basically? Well, I think it was triggered because I'd seen her go through all this. And, and I went on holiday with my wife at the start of last year. And we left just before the new year. So it was sort of just after Christmas. And I we was going back home for Christmas. And my mum was in such a state that I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go on holiday. I didn't want to leave her. But my mum was, no, no, you have to go, you have to go, you can't stick up here, you have to go, you have to go. So it would have been just as bad if I'd stayed because you'd have felt guilty about it. I did go and she was, and my other brothers were there and stuff. But I remember the night before leaving when I should have been excited about going on holiday, I, was, I burst into tears and I didn't let my wife see, I didn't let anyone see. 
I think I've been holding a lot of stuff in, trying to keep my mum together and keep my family together and stuff. And when I was there, I'd never done this before, but I started Googling all these diseases I'm going to get in Vietnam. I'm going to get bit by a mosquito and stuff. And I, and I wasn't sleeping, so I was up all night Googling stuff and worrying about stuff, often crying on my own in the bathroom or something. Because it was so, I felt like I was losing my mind. And... Yeah, the lack of sleep really didn't help. And I was convinced I got like DVT from the from a flight at one point. I was convinced I got all these different viruses and I experienced what I now know is sort of depersonalization or like disassociation where I felt like I was floating above my body. It was really weird. We'd gone out, I had a couple of drinks, but not very many, and we were playing pool in the hotel bar, my wife and I. And I remember it felt like I was dining into myself. I felt like I was above my head somewhere. And I could see myself and I was having to basically almost like play myself in a play, like I was just dialing in. It was the weirdest fucking experience of my life. And for the rest of the time, I was we were there for two weeks and I was in a right state. There were days that were nicer, but overall, it was horrible. And, I, and it, all it was, and I think I'm only just realising this in the last few months, was because all my concerns about my mum and my family was manifesting itself in this, right? And I got back from that, felt a bit better because my mum was back at work. I thought things were getting a bit more back to normal. And then I saw this thing called coronavirus come in. I became panicked about that, I really panicked. So when everyone was, you know, being very blasé about stuff, I was locking myself away and I was in a right state. And I had a, my first panic attack a few weeks before lockdown. I never had them before, never. And I, I thought it was like a heart attack. I couldn't breathe. I was shaking. My heart was I'm just like trying to crack out my chest. And for two nights in a row, I had these panic attacks. And I had to suddenly go into a mode of looking after myself as much as possible when I started meditating and stuff. But my whole day was dominated by thinking about coronavirus and thinking about health and just being in this fight or flight state the whole time where I was just panicked and sweating and, and horrible. So I hadn't left the flat for two weeks and then I got the phone call and I had attempted suicide again. And so combined with that and lockdown, etc. My own mental health was in the darkest place it had ever been. I didn't know what was going on. And so that just added to it. And suddenly going from a, from a situation where I was locking myself in with my wife for basically two weeks. Actually, I remember going back a little bit. Before that, I remember going back home to see my mum a couple of weeks before she died. It was a weekend. And what I mentioned earlier on, and I didn't want to leave. I was scared. I was really scared. And the last time I saw my mum being my mum, was she looked at me and she said, don't worry, darling, you'll be all right. And gave me a big hug. And I saw like a glint in her eye of, of my mum that I used to know, which is positive and loving. And the whole that weekend, I've basically been being a parent, basically. But in that little moment, I cling on to that moment because that's the last time I saw her as she was. And I was thinking, no, I can do this. I can, I can do this. But of course, went went back home for two weeks, locked myself in, and then she died. But I, at least I got that one moment, you know. It was your wife who recognised you were struggling, mate, and needed help as soon as possible. How did the therapy you were put on help? And if so, in what ways? They just ask questions that you've never asked yourself before. No, no one's ever asked you before. And initially, it was very much a sort of, you know, firefighting thing, I suppose. If I can give any advice to anyone about therapy, I saw two therapists initially because I thought I want to see 
want to kind of check a couple out to see, see how they are. And I went to see a guy who was really good, but I felt we didn't quite sort of click. And so I just sort of did one session with him. And then I went to another therapist that actually offered her first session free of charge. And I've ended up sort of seeing her since then. It's obviously all been remote for a while, but initially it was face-to-face. I think I just realised, oh, shit, I've been through a lot. And it was actually just before my mum passed away. And so it was more about my mum's suicide attempts and stuff. And then she would just help me cope with that because... I'm not sure I would have coped without therapy. My mental health down the shitter, my mum's suicide and lockdown, all of that. We didn't have someone to talk to once a week. I don't know how I got through it because just asking those questions and keeping you analysing yourself and asking those questions and, and making you recognise that actually you're going through a lot of pain and you deserve some love. I'd never given myself any credit for anything, any compassion, any self-compassion. And therapy really helped with that. And it's, you know, it's fine. My, my wife is incredibly supportive. My family are incredibly supportive as well. But it's different because you've got it coming from a stranger. Someone saying to you, oh, shit, you've had a really tough time. And I remember the therapist saying to me in the very first session, oh, poor you. And she really meant it. And I think, oh, shit, yeah, actually, it's quite fucking hard, this, isn't it? I hadn't given myself the credit to even think you're going through a really tough time. So I've got to get on with it. That was my attitude. I've got, got to get through this. Come on, just smile on your face man up that horrible phrase right it's still there it still lingers there even though i know it's wrong it's still you know that little narrative in your head going you've got to do this you've got to carry on and for the first time someone said to me poor you you need to recognize that you're having a terrible time and look after yourself oh shit no i do yeah you're right do you think there's a stigma about going to therapy particularly amongst men and boys and how do you think we remove that stigma if you think there is one I think just by talking about it, really. And I, it's been quite interesting because when I started doing it, I was a bit embarrassed about it. But since then, I've made it quite widely known. I've put things on Twitter about it and stuff like that. And people have reached out to me. And then that thing that you mentioned earlier on, which is, oh, my God, I didn't think you'd be going through stuff like this. You seem so strong and <laughs> stuff like that, right? And I've had quite a few blokes message me, actually, who said, you know, what do you think about it? And they have then gone on to get therapy themselves. So that's another positive to take out of this. And I've chatted to quite a few of them about how it helped me, how I think it would help them, potentially. Just being honest about the process, like it's not a, a silver bullet at all, but it does help, definitely. And I think people like yourself, people like myself, and other guests that you've had on here talking about it really openly and saying it's fine, we all should do it, it helps. We'll, we'll just hopefully get other blokes and other people who are thinking about it already just to take that extra step to go, okay, it's okay to do this. We can do it. And it's not, there's no stigma. Because you're right, there has been historically. And I think attitudes are changing now, which is well overdue. Our final topic of conversation, Dan, and it's one I try and have with all my special guests, which is a general natter about our mental health. So firstly, and you can include circumstances or exclude them. How would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate? A lot better than it was at the start of the year. A lot better. I think time away from events and stuff, you know, they say time's a healer. And to an extent, it's right. Pain's still there. You still carry around all this baggage. It just becomes a little bit lighter, I suppose. Or you learn to deal with it. Or you get some nice wheelie suitcases to carry around with. I don't know. How, how far do you want me to extend this analogy? <laughs> it's a bit better now than it was a while ago, anyway. And what age do you think you were when you first realised that these feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind? 34, same age as I am now. <laughs> the last like the last eight months, and I've gone, oh fuck, yeah, all that shit that happened when I was a kid, and all this stuff I mean, my mum. Yeah, that's probably going to fuck you up a little bit. 
and to, to give myself the, the time and the, the credit to actually deal with that properly. What was it like when you had that first conversation with someone about your mental health? You know, who was it with? How did it go? And what impact did it have on you? Did it feel like a massive thing or did it actually feel quite insignificant? It was with the therapist, probably in terms of, you know, a, a focus session, just looking at mental health. The first time I'd ever done anything like that. And I just kind of like, <laughs> I remember just listing the amount of stuff that gone on. And actually, it wasn't so much the therapist I ended up using all the time. It was the guy therapist I went to see first. I just remember him sat there with a notepad and he was just going, oh, dear. Oh, dear. I just kept, I was like, I kept saying the things that happened. Uni, when I was a kid, my dad, class stuff, mum, everything. The health anxiety is like, oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. And I remember thinking, actually, shit, yeah, I've probably been through quite a lot without realising it. And what things do you find in life that might trigger your mental health? So it might be things people might say to you, sounds, sensations, social environments. What can you tell me here? At the moment, that's still still sort of embroiled with coronavirus and stuff. And I, and I still find myself, well, and also general health anxiety. So I'll be Googling stuff and I need to say to myself, stop, like it's not healthy. And it's hard to do that. And quite often you get into a bit of a pit where you start doing that a lot. And you just need to try and break the cycle, basically, as difficult as it is because it's not healthy, it's not good. But also what's a little bit difficult about health anxiety is sometimes you might actually have something that's legitimately wrong with you. So I had, I was getting um, really bad pain sort of in my groin area and stuff, and I'd done my thigh and stuff a little while ago. And I actually had to go to the hospital and get some scans done. Unfortunately, it's okay. But I remember the time thinking, oh, God, is this just another manifestation of my health anxiety? And you go, oh, no, maybe there's actually something wrong with you. So sometimes it's really difficult to get out of that cycle so there's, there's something actually wrong. Too much screen time doesn't help because then a lot of that screen time goes into Googling stuff and to talking about things, and also the news. The news is doom and gloom all the fucking time, no matter what you're going through, and it's, and it's so depressing. And, and I've learned recently that through trying to unpack this saver complex stuff, because I'm always so concerned with trying to save other people and help other people out, and actually all you can do is the stuff that you can directly influence. So I can help people out through the theatre industry somehow, and I do try and have conversations with people to, to help with access and stuff like that, and through other means, my family and whatnot. All you can do is control the stuff that's within your circle of control, right? I've tried so hard to do that and to not get too angry about what fucking Boris Johnson's up to because I can't control that, unfortunately, as much as I want to. Uh, to get rid of him, you can't control that, right? So you, you change the things that you can change. And what tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health or help you feel better? You know, which ones have you found that have worked and maybe which ones that you've tried but haven't? Uh, I tried meditation for a while and that, that still helps a bit. And actually, my, my autistic brother still does that he's really good actually for someone you know for autism is supposed to be a lack of empathy right but he's an incredibly empathetic human being incredibly funny and has taken on a lot of support for mental health he's a trailblazer for all of us actually in terms of he reached out for support really early charities and things like that and talked to people and he also you know practiced meditation with me for a while when i went home immediately after my mum died and i found that that really helped i don't do that as much anymore but I find talking about it and being open about it just really helps. So stuff like this is really useful. But also talk to mates about it. I had a long conversation with a mate of mine a couple of nights ago on Zoom, like a four-hour chat about life and stuff and just kind of chewing the fat, really. And just being very open about it, I think, helps enormously. Toxic masculinity is a big topic on this podcast, Dan. It's one I try and break down a lot. Hopefully in a few years, in a few more pods, toxic masculinity will be no more or be in a very small minority. What would you define as toxic masculinity and outside of I guess your childhood and experiences with your dad what examples of it have you experienced that you, you can share with the listeners I think a lot of it comes down to control so feeling the need to control everything including yourself 
in fact, ultimately yourself and to to indulge in certain stereotypical behaviours, right? The way you treat other people, particularly women, but also actually, so it is particularly women, but also to boys as well, this idea of what it is to be a man. And it's a lot of it is steeped in the patriarch, it's steeped in stiff upper lip, it's steeped in to stuff with strength and all these stereotypical views of what a man is. And it's complete bollocks, right? We all know it's complete bollocks. I think a lot of the men doing it, though, is complete bollocks as well. But they, they are in a pattern of behaviour where that is the system that they have to try and play into. In terms of how we break it down, I think we just need to encourage people to be themselves as much as possible and be themselves in a way that, that includes a mix of emotions at times and to be open to, to those mix of emotions that no one has to be constant. We all change. Sometimes we get up and we feel like shit. Sometimes we get up and we feel brilliant. Talking to people changes our moods. An awareness that, that human beings are all different, but we all share similarities as well, and to celebrate those. And that's why I, I love theatre as well, as a celebration of human emotion and human interactions and, and stories. And the more men, I think, that open up about that, the better long-term. I also talk a lot about this idea of positive masculinity, Dan, and hopefully in a few more years and a few more pods, masculinity will just be described as positive masculinity. How would you define it? And what qualities do you think a man should exude to be described as positively masculine? Now, some guests have said it's self-confidence. Some guests have said it's emotional intelligence, self-awareness, compassion, empathy. What would you describe it as? I think it's caring. Having a caring aspect of your personality, I think really helps with positive masculinity because there's an assumption that a man caring about anything is negative. A man should be independent and strong. We all have aspects of that. Of course, we do quite independent with, with things. But that caring and that empathy, connecting with other people and not being afraid to connect with other people. My therapist said to me a while ago, we need to find the pink and fluffy Dan. <laughs> That's quite nice. So there's not enough pink and fluffy Dan looking after people, well, looking after yourself mainly. And so, yeah, which of course is a very gendered thing, isn't it? Pink and fluffy, nice no, a girl's thing, right? But it's, no, we've all got aspects that we all need to care for each other and care for ourselves. And if men do that more and aware that actually caring isn't a girly thing, right, isn't a feminine thing, it's a human being thing, then that will help enormously. And just finally, what more do we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues, their mental health in general, emotions, if they want to? Not being scared of doing it and embarrassed of doing it. Because actually, as soon as you start doing it, it sort of rolls and you go, oh, this is fine. I can talk about this. This is absolutely fine. But that initial step, and that's a conversation I've had with a few people I've referred to earlier on. People say, oh, how do you find therapy? You know, people saying to me, oh, you're a pretty strong guy. You always seem like you know what you're doing. But so why do you need to go to therapy? Oh, I'll tell them quite honestly and quite openly. And they go, okay, that drops the wall, right? In a way, you can see beyond that and go, actually, it's okay to do that. So I just think just that initial starting point. And as soon as that's happened things suddenly get much better and people are much more open talking about it. But it's that initial point of going, just that step between, I think I should probably talk about these things, but I'm embarrassed and I'm scared to actually doing it. I think that's the most important moment. Well, I think that's all we've got time for on this first ever episode of Real Stories. I hope you guys have all enjoyed it. I want to say a massive thank you to Dan for being my special guest on this first episode. He showed unbelievable bravery and honesty in speaking so deeply about his mum and his mental health experiences in the last year. I hope this pod has helped all of you listeners. 
As always, thank you to all the vendors who've tuned in. Remember, if you've liked what you've heard, please give this a share on all the usual social media channels, tell your friends or work colleagues about it, or if you're feeling generous, give us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for the next episode of Real Stories, and remember, it's always okay to vent. Don't